and we'll begin in verse number 1 in just a moment. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And again, we have one more week. Next week, we will wrap up and conclude our series through the life of Samuel, and hopefully it's been helpful to us. Next week, we'll see uh, Samuel kind of performing his last big feat as uh, the prophet of God. We'll see him find and uh, anoint King David in 1 Samuel 16, but 1 Samuel chapter 12 is where we'll begin, and we'll cover these 20 or so verses, okay? We'll, we'll move quickly, so don't be too scared, all right? Uh, verse number one of 1 Samuel chapter 12, and let's begin by reading down to verse number five, okay? 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse one, Samuel said unto all Israel, behold, I have hearkened unto your voice and all that you said unto me, and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray-headed. He said it, not me, right? I am old and gray-headed, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Behold, here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, or whose ass have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or of whose hands have I received a bribe to blind my eyes with? And I will restore it unto you. And they said, Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that ye have not found aught in my hand. And they answered that he is witness. Okay, again, second to last study here in our life of Samuel. I'm going to start with a story. A story. Um, this story comes from a book called Finishing Strong by Steve Farrar. If you haven't read it, you should pick it up. It's a great book. But... Uh, you guys have heard of Billy Graham. I'm a big Billy Graham guy. I'm so much of a big Billy Graham guy that my oldest son's name is Graham, okay? So occasionally someone will let me know Billy Graham wasn't perfect, and I let you know I know he's not perfect, but my son's name is Graham, okay? So I'm a pretty big fan um, of the life and ministry of Billy Graham. Most of us don't know the name Chuck Templeton or Braun Clifford, but Billy Graham wasn't the only young preacher in the 1940s filling auditoriums. Chuck Templeton and Braun Clifford were doing the same, if not with more people than Billy Graham was. All three young men were in their 20s, really fired up and zealous for the things of God. They were doing these uh, kind of youth for Christ kind of crusades, and thousands and thousands of people were coming to hear these three young men preach. One uh, seminary president, after hearing Chuck Templeton preach, said that he had never heard another individual with more talent or more gifting to be able to preach than Chuck Templeton. And Templeton and Graham were friends, but if they had to put their money on who's going to be the next successful, right, evangelist, who's going to have libraries named after them, and right, like they, they would have put their money on Chuck Templeton. I mean, the, the talent and the gifting was just unbelievable. Clifford was more of a fireball. He wasn't too refined. Uh, there wasn't much uh, to the oratory ability of Clifford. He was just uh, what Whitfield used to say, light yourself on fire and let people come and watch, right? That was kind of Clifford's uh, philosophy of preaching. And he was a uh, fiery evangelist. A lot of people would come and they'd flock to these auditoriums. Uh, there'd be lines of 9, 10, 11 people looking in the windows of these places to be able to hear these young men preach. So why have we not heard of Ron Clifford? Why have we not heard of, of Chuck Templeton? Well, Templeton left ministry about five years after filling those auditoriums at the age of 30 to become a journalist and a commentator. Ten years later, after filling those auditoriums, he left his faith altogether and left his orthodox faith as a Christian. He 
rejected the claims that he once preached, rejected the claims of the Bible, and became uh, an atheist. Clifford ran the other direction as well, in a little bit different way. He lost his family. He lost his, his two daughters. Uh, he really succumbed and lived a life pursuing alcohol. He eventually died alone in a uh, hotel room of cirrhosis of the liver, and churches had to kind of take up collections to be able to give him some kind of a burial. It's really a, a sad story. So we have Chuck Templeton, Ron Clifford, Billy Graham, all three filling auditoriums, filling arenas with people to hear the truth of the gospel. Ten years later, one of them is still going. One of them was still on track for Christ. It's not how you start that matters. It's how you finish. It's not how you begin. It's are you going to finish well. It doesn't matter how well we start. A lot of us begin in this life of following Jesus. It's not about how we start. It's about how we finish. And the text we have before us in chapter 12 is really kind of an overall summary of Samuel's life. He's going to give us some insights into who he was when he was young. We saw that for a moment. You saw me when I was young to when I'm old and gray-headed, right? It's kind of a summary of his life. I think this text gives more validity than any other text that we've studied so far into who Samuel was, his, his life, his ministry, his integrity. Why is it so impactful for us to read this? Because Samuel went hard for the Lord until the end. He was full-hearted. He had ups and downs. We saw last week he had joys and sorrows and pains and mistakes and regret. But in the end, Samuel finished strong. And there's still today so many examples of men and women who, men and women who have made it, who have persevered, who have finished strong. So oftentimes we don't hear about um, the, the ministers or the, the Christians or the, the moms and dads that finish well because they're not quite as attractive or um, click-friendly as maybe a major celebrity pastor that falls or fails. They're not quite as uh, insightful. That doesn't sell quite as much, right? So we think nobody's finishing, nobody's going to make it. Uh, but in reality, there's lots of people who are finishing well. There's lots of believers who have finished strong, who have been faithful there's no headline for that. There's no juicy story for that. There's no magazines that that will sell. But I think it's so much more beautiful. There's so much power in it. I, I follow this, one of these guys I follow on social media put up a post, and he put headline, and it was about his childhood pastor. And it was about uh, pastor uh, retires after 45 years of pastoring the same church, no real drama, no real crisis, no uh, news headlines, retired, loved his wife, his kids still like him. End of story. Like, well, we need to occasionally hear that that happens, right? We occasionally hear that people can finish this life of following Jesus. It's not everyone burning out in every possible direction. So to get us context and where we're at, if you haven't been here with our study, last week we saw Israel wanted a king, not just a king in God, but a king in a human. They wanted a, uh, a king in Saul, and God gave them what they wanted. And 1 Samuel chapter 12 is really significant because it's kind of Samuel's goodbye message as the judge. He's no longer going to be kind of the de facto leader over Israel anymore. That's going to pass over to Saul as the anointed king over Israel. So Samuel's kind of giving a farewell address. This is who I was as your judge. This is who I, the, the life I tried to live. And he's beginning a new era of his life where he'll be a prophet of God, speaking for God in a new line of prophets. Chapter 12 is also really significant because the people now realize that how they demanded this monarchy, how they demanded that they get a king, was sinful. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that the light bulb kind of goes off for them, that this isn't really what we wanted after all. So Samuel stands before these people. He's gray. He's old. 
This is his retirement kind of address, okay, as the judge over Israel. And what can we learn from it as we endeavor to finish well? I want to give you four requirements, okay, four essential things in our life to finish well. Number one, number one, if you're going to finish well as a follower of Jesus, you have to have a walk of integrity. You have to have a walk of integrity. Let's go back to verse number one. When Samuel stands up, he begins to speak. Behold, I have listened unto your voice and all that you said unto me. I've given you a king, and now this king walks before you. I'm old and gray-headed. I've walked before you from my childhood into this day. In other words, you've seen me from when I was a baby to now. And then he begins to ask them some questions. He says, who, as, who here have I hurt? Who here have I taken from? Whose oxen have I taken? Whose donkeys have I taken? Who, who did I defraud? Who did I oppress? Who did I receive a bribe from? He says, if, if you'll tell me, I want to restore it unto you. And I love verses 4 and 5 because it's a really encouraging thing to me. When you say, you know, I, I, want, I, want, you, I want someone to tell me, have I hurt you? Have I wounded you? Have I, have I taken something from you? And verse 4, you haven't defrauded us. You haven't oppressed us. You haven't taken anything from any of us. Well, what an encouraging thing. Like, what a moment. One, what a terrifying thing to ask from people, right? And then two, to get that kind of response. Samuel stands up and challenges the people of Israel to find in him some kind of character issue, to find in him some kind of flaw in his integrity, in his character over the course of his life. And they fail to find anything. They say, no, Samuel, you haven't done anything to us. You haven't taken advantage of us. You haven't defrauded us. If it was today, you say, look through my files. Look through my emails. Look through my, 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 my phone. Look through my, my social media history and find if there's some issues here. That, that's what, basically what he's saying. Look. Find my family. Interview my kids, right? Find a reason to accuse me. What we're seeing here is the power and the the clarity of mind that comes when you live a life of integrity. It's powerful because you live in a way where you don't have anything to hide. Or yeah, sir, if you, if you freak out when your wife reaches over and opens up your laptop, we might not be living a life of integrity, right? Or if we get really nervous when they're asking us, you know, well, what time did you get off work and why was that three hours ago, right? Like, well, we might not be living a life of integrity, if our conscience is clear, we can live that way. And what a freeing way to live, right? Knowing, if you, if you have a conscience that's not clear, you're, you're always like spending your life looking over your shoulder, wondering when they're going to find out, when this is going to happen, always wondering when you're going to get caught, who's watching me, who's trying to figure out what I'm doing. What a terrible way to live, right? Samuel says, hey, when did I take from you? When did I hurt you? When did I wound you? When did I take bribes? Now, we've studied the, the leaders over Israel to know they've had leaders take bribes, right? We saw Eli, we saw his sons. They've had leaders who have taken from them. They've had leaders who have manipulated them. And it's just, Samuel says, I haven't done that. And maybe it's, there's some of us in the room that we're living that life of watching over our shoulder at all times, trying to figure out when we're going to get caught, when, when the other shoe's going to drop. And it's, it's scary. It's, it's, it's terrifying to wonder, right? And maybe we're there, we're living this duplicitous life. How exhausting that must be to always be worried about when someone's going to find out, when that secret's going to get out. Not Samuel. He says, examine my life. What, what a freeing way to live. I'm just going to handle my business. I'm going to handle my life. I'm going to handle my family. I'm going to handle my relationships in such a way that I'm not perfect, okay? But I'm, I'm not constantly fearing of when somebody's going to find out. When a, when a police officer is behind me with his lights on, 
I don't. Ha- well, I still get a little nervous because I drive a little aggressively, but largely I'm not worried about it, right? And if we're constantly concerned over when this is going to happen and when we're going to call it, we're in bondage to that. There's a freedom with having a clear conscience. You ever come across a uh, overzealous TSA agent? Maybe you travel or fly. We fly a little bit. And, uh, you know, they're just, they're asking questions that really are none of their business, right? Uh, like, what did you brush? Did you brush your teeth this morning? Maybe I did, man. It's 4 a.m. Maybe I didn't. You know, it's, it's a little early. Like, they're really getting your business. Like, where are you going? What are you going there for? Maybe you ever traveled internationally. They're asking you if you've got, you know, any fruits, veggies, sneak any trail mix in here from Mexico, right? They're trying to examine everything in your life. And the more questions they ask, you can get a little bothered. But ultimately, I know I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not trying to sneak anything out of this airplane. So the questions don't really bother us that much. Now, if you were doing something, or if you did have something in your car driving across the customs line, right, you are used to start getting a little nervous, right? If you went to Montreal and are bringing back some stuff you're not supposed to bring back, right? You're getting a little cautious the more questions they ask, the more concerned they get. We want to live our lives in a way where the questions we get, the concerns we get, they don't really bother us. We, we don't feel them as accusations, if every time someone asks you a question, you hear accusation, we might not be living a life of integrity. Notice in verses 3 and 4, the word taken is used quite a few times, four times exactly. Why does he use that word taken? You guys remember last, last week where, we, where Samuel talked about the king they were going to get? He said he's going to take your wives, he's going to take your kids, he's going to take your, your, your income, he's going to take all these things for himself. He's contrasting that with the life that he's lived. He said, have I done that? Have I taken from you? Have I manipulated you? Have I taken advantage of you? And they have nothing to say. I love verse 2, where he says, I've lived in front of you since I was a kid. His consistency, his integrity, even from his youth, he lived a life of integrity. They've seen this guy literally in the public eye for decades. Sometimes I turn on the TV and I see how there's, you know, a young, famous person, maybe it's a musician or an actor or something, is acting like a young person, right? And his news gets spread everywhere, her news gets spread everywhere, and we kind of excuse it and think, well, that person's just a kid, right? Samuel was kind of a Israelite celebrity, okay? Uh, he lived his life in public in front of all these people, and he says, from when I was a kid until now, have I ever taken advantage? Have I ever hurt? Have I ever wounded? And they have no response. He's been consistent. He's lived a life of integrity. They've seen it all, yet none can accuse him. That's pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. I've always loved the definition of integrity as living one life. One life. You're the same no matter who you're with. You're the same no matter where you are. You have integrity, right? Whether I'm at home with my spouse or I'm you know, speaking in the boardroom, no matter where I am, I am the same person. When I'm or on the water cooler at work with the guys, or I'm here on the golf course, or I'm here on, the, on my phone texting someone, I'm the same person, right? I'm not living a duplicitous kind of life. That's what it means to have integrity, single-mindedness, single-lifedness. I don't know if that's a word, but we're going to roll with it, right? Um, sometimes we turn on the news, and that, the last few years it's been a little bit discouraging as you've seen a lot of Christian leaders or speakers or pastors or or just Christians that are kind of in the public eye as they begin to fall away. And a lot of people ask us, like, how'd that happen? Like, how does a pastor do that? Or how does a, a leader, a Christian leader, do, do this? Can I tell you that the one, I, I can never answer, you know, this was the moment, because there probably never was a moment. Those things don't happen in a day. Those things don't happen really in weeks. Those things happen over the course of months, over the course of years. 
where somewhere along the line there was a breakdown in a foundational character trait of integrity, that you have a single-mindedness, that you live one life. And as integrity starts to be dismissed, small issues become big issues. Small deceits become big deceits. Small changes become big changes. And then it's a headline, right? It wasn't like, oh, wow, this guy that loved the Lord so passionately with everything he had, the next day he just fell away and committed adultery. It's not usually how it happens, right? There's usually a breakdown somewhere along the way that begins a process of living some kind of duplicitous life where I'm this person in front of these people, and I'm this person in front of these people, and eventually those lines become furry, fuzzy, and crossed, right? This is what we need to be really, really careful of. Because if we cannot walk with integrity, if we live this kind of duplicitous life, if we wouldn't invite this kind of examination, we're not going to be able to finish well without that kind of character of integrity. But then those that live with integrity, it's powerful. It's powerful. Again, we don't want to presume where we'll be tomorrow. We don't presume where we'll be next year, next decade. But I can determine today, today I'm going to walk with integrity. Today I'm going to determine when I'm at work, I'm going to be the same person at work that I am at church. I'm the same person at home that I am at church. Sometimes we have the issues of young people that grow up, like why are young people leaving the church? Some of it, obviously every person has to make their own choice, but some of it was they saw moms and dads living a little bit of a duplicitous life. And dad at church was not dad at home. And mom at church was not mom at home. And all of a sudden they start seeing the issues in that kind of integrity, and it kind of begins to crumble. You know, where am I going to be five years from now? I don't know, but if you live a life of integrity today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, that's a pretty good chance you're going to result in you finishing well. We set these big goals, man. I like to dream. Where am I going to be in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Most of us need to determine, I'm just going to live a life of Christian character and integrity today. And then wake up tomorrow and do it again. Then wake up tomorrow and do it again and do it again. If you continue to do that, what I can guarantee you is you're probably going to be protecting yourself from the big headline kind of failure in your life. Day by day, that's how we finish well. Confessing, repenting, trusting, determining. Every day I'm going to live with integrity in the day that God has given me today. Today. A life of integrity is made up of days of integrity. Today I'm going to serve you. Today I'll be faithful to you. Today I'm going to once again beg you as God to help me and give me the power of your Holy Spirit to live a life that is single-mindedly in the ways that you have me to go. So this morning, let's ask yourself a question. Are there some areas of your life right now that are covered in darkness, that are concealed from the rest of your life? Maybe they're in a room this size. There's probably some folks this morning that are living some kind of a duplicitous life, that you're this person here and you're another person at work, or you're this person at work and another person at home. And if your parents knew, you'd freak out if you're young. If your spouse knew, you'd know you'd be in trouble Understand this, it doesn't matter if your spouse knows, it doesn't matter if your parents know, God knows. He's aware of all of this. So this morning we invite you to bring it into the light, confess it to the Lord, stop looking over your shoulder and live with a clear conscience, right? Live without having to freak out moments every time someone comes across and asks you a question. So we're going to finish well. What do we got to do? We got to live a life of integrity. Live a life of integrity. The good news is God is so kind and gracious and forgiving, that when we bring these things, these secret concealed things into light, we are promised mercy and forgiveness and restoration and healing. He knows we're not perfect. He, he so much knew you weren't perfect that he died for all those things you got hidden away, okay? He knows all of those things, but we have to be honest with him. So number one, we're going to live a life of integrity. Number two, second essential 
if we're going to follow after the things of the Lord to finish strong, finish well, we have to hold to an unchanging message. Hold to an unchanging message. Verse number six, he kind of concludes this, this speech on his integrity and uh, asks for these kind of accusations if they're there. Verse six, Samuel goes on to say unto the people, it is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. He giving praise to God for the good things in, his, in the past. So now, therefore, I love this, verse 7, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of God, which he did to you and to your fathers. When Jacob was coming to Egypt and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your families out of Egypt and caused them to dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord, their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the captain of the horse of Ahazor, into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. What happened? Verse 8, 10, sorry, verse 10. They cried unto the Lord and said, we've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord. We've served Balaam and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us once again, God, out of the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. Verse 11, the Lord sent Jerubal and Bedin and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and ye dwelled safe. What is Samuel doing? Samuel's reminding the people of their unfaithfulness to the Lord and God's faithfulness to him. This is one of my favorite songs we sing at church uh, is that uh, He Will Hold Me Fast, where it talks about our lack of faithfulness and God's abounding in faithfulness. How when I can't hold on to him, he's holding on to us. That's what Samuel's doing. Hey, remember when you forgot the Lord and you cried in, in your slavery and your suffering and God came and he forgave you? And then remember you forgot the Lord again and then you cried in the Lord again and he came and he forgave you and he saved you? He's reminding them of God's faithfulness to them over the generations. He recalls the judges who God sent to rescue them from the consequences of their decision. And then look at verse number 12. Verse 12 and 13 are kind of a hinge in our text, okay? kind of turns the door for us. Verse 12, and when he saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said unto me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. I love that, big difference. We shall have a king that will reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore behold the king whom ye have chosen and whom ye have desired. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. In other words, you got what you wanted. You didn't want the Lord to be king over you anymore. You wanted a, a, a human king. You asked for it. And then the tone changes in Samuel's voice. He, he's going from kind of contrarian to verse 14 to he's going to provide them with the path to success as the people of God. Verse 14. If you will fear the Lord, serve him, obey his voice, and rebel not against the commandment of the Lord, then both shall ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. In other words, if you fear God and serve him and obey him, it's going to go really well for you. If you don't, verse 15, you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of God. Then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as well as against your fathers. Here's what I want you to notice. That message of verse 14 and 15, we've seen that preached by Samuel. Uh, how many weeks have we been in this? I'm in week seven, right? Seven weeks now. It's basically the same message over and over again. Obey the Lord, serve the Lord, fear the Lord. Your life's going to turn out okay. God's going to be with you and help you and provide for you. Reject the Lord, resist the Lord, disobey the Lord, and you're going to find that life doesn't go so well for you. Samuel's message has never changed. This is the path to blessing, and then he contrasts that with this is the path to destruction. The path to blessing is faithfulness. The path to destruction is disobedience. 
We've heard these same themes week after week after week. I started feeling like week number six. I'm just preaching the same message every week is what it starts to feel like. Right? This is Samuel's text. He said, I'm, you need to fear the Lord, honor the Lord, repent of that which is broken, and give yourself over to God. Seek the Lord. How many times have we seen in the text with your whole heart, with everything you have, seeking to honor and please the Lord? From adolescence to gray hair, Samuel has preached, seek the Lord, love the Lord, obey the Lord, worship the Lord. The message has not changed. He never tired of the message of God's truth. He never tired of the message of God's love. He's never tired of preaching the fear of the Lord and the importance of obedience. All through his life, he's never gotten tired of it. And it's allowed him to finish well. His message really hasn't changed. And I think if we're honest, this highlights one of the foremost crises of our day right now in in Christianity especially, but in the world as general is there are so many of us and so many in our culture and our world who are tempted or are already actively changing the message of God's word, manipulating the messages of God's truth, watering down the message of the gospel. They are tweaking or changing or trivializing. In most cases, they're brutalizing the message of the truths of Scripture for the acceptance of the culture that is around them. That, well, this sounds a little bit harsh, or this sounds a little bit more abrasive, or this sounds a little bit too hard for our culture to hear, so let's just soften that here, or weaken the approach here, let's make it a little more approachable, let's make it a little more understanding. That's not finishing well. Samuel's never shifted in his message, he's never shifted in the message of what he's here to preach. We can't finish well while swerving away from the message of the word. While saying, what, is, what, what, are we kinda, what makes this more appealing? What makes the message of the scriptures more attractive to people? What, what makes Jesus and the message of the gospel more palatable to the modern ear, the modern heart? This isn't new. Look, look at your Bibles, Galatians chapter 1. I put it in your outline, what Paul had to say about this. He says, but though we or an angel from heaven, if they were to preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That gospel he's talking about is the message of the Old Testament, the New Testament, the message of the truth of Jesus is revealed to us in the word, the truth of the gospel. Somebody else comes in and preaches a new gospel, Paul says, let him be accursed. Why? Because instead of leading people to the water of life, they're leading people to destruction. Instead of, instead of leading people to, yes, it might be a hard truth of repentance and faith and trust, but that results in life and forgiveness and love and eternal joy. Instead, they're caving into the pressure. We'll see that in verse number 10. They're caving into the pressure of the culture around them, and they're leading people towards the path of destruction. He says, if, if anyone's preaching another gospel, let him be accursed. Verse 9, as we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel to you than you have received, let him be accursed. Why? Verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? In other words, why would they preach another gospel? Because they've shifted in who they're trying to please. They've shifted in who they're trying to, to honor. They're shifted in truth who they're trying to make happy. Do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek, he says, in his preaching to please men? This is why they changed the word. This is why they changed the message. This is why they leave. They want to be accepted. They want to be applauded for what they have to say. They want to be applauded for the truths of Scripture. They lack in the fear of the Lord, and they abound in a fear of man. And as a result, they twist it and they change it. And they, they skip over verses that are a little bit not as politically correct as they are today. Like they, they, they manipulate things. They change things. They adapt the message, not Samuel. The message has been the same. The truth has always gone forth from Samuel's mouth. Look at the tail end of verse number 10. For if I yet pleased men, if that was my goal... I should not be the servant of Christ. Paul puts it right on the table, man. He 
He says, my job is not to have people approve of me. I need to have God approve of me. My job is not to have mankind think that everything is, is so well uh, spoken or well received or so palatable. He says, if I'm trying to please man, I'm not being a faithful servant of Jesus. And obviously we can go about uh, the message of the gospel in a way that makes it more abrasive than even Jesus does. Okay? Um, we can do things in our lives and our ministry and the tone in which we speak that actually does add to or manipulate the gospel in the other extreme. But if our primary goal is to please Jesus... The message that we're going to declare is going to be completely consistent with the message of the word. If my primary goal is to please people, that is incompatible with being a wholehearted servant of Jesus. He says, I want you to serve me with everything you've got. So that's, I think it's ultimately what it comes to. Why, why are churches changing? Why are they doing this? Why, why don't we not talk about this anymore? Ultimately, I think a lot of us, we are tempted to, and I'm not above that, we're tempted to please men rather than God. We're tempted to make the message more palatable or acceptable to humanity versus pleasing and accurate to the truth of Scripture. And if this is where we're at this morning, we're not going to finish well. We're not going to finish well. We might not finish at all because if you leave the message of the word, you leave, you leave everything, right? You leave the truth of the gospel, you, you leave, you're leaving God. That's not who he is. It's not going to go well. We're going to, I want to finish strong. I want to finish well. That demands I have a commitment to the same message, the same message of the gospel. If I lose that, we lose everything. You think of our opening examples. We talk about Templeton and Clifford, right? Those two guys are so fired up and so zealous and so desiring to have an impact and serve Jesus, and they, all of a sudden, they're gone away. doesn't matter how you start. If you change the message, you change the truth of Scripture, you're not going to finish well. Today in the climate that we're in, in our world, in our culture, we will be pressured into leaving the truths of the book that sits in our laps. We'll be tempted and pressured into leaving the accuracy of the truths of Scripture, the exclusivity of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We will be tempted to appease those or appeal to those who are, hey, as long as you believe with all your heart and what you do and I believe with all my heart and what I do, everything's going to turn out okay. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's, there's one door through which we reach Jesus, through God, and it's, the door is Jesus Christ. We'll be tempted to leave the truths of this, of this book. We live in a world where we can be sure that that pressure will come. You don't think it's going to happen. I want you to walk into your workplace tomorrow, just plop your Bible out on your desk. Most, a lot of you guys work from home, so this isn't going to be a big <laughs> experiment. Uh, your cat's going to be like, ah, I don't know about that book, right? But uh, for those of you guys who work you know, in an environment, in a hospital, or you're at the you know, office, wherever it is, open your Bible. Just start talking to people about what you're reading. Do not expect raucous rounds of applause. It's probably not going to be met with just an absolute joy and celebration. You can turn on newhopect.com live and blare it through your speakers. They will not applaud you, okay? Um, that's not what they want to hear, right? That, that, that's not in our, in our climate and the culture in which we're in. There's a lot of pressure to leave the truths of Scripture. And many are. A lot of people are wandering away from the message seeking the approval of man, seeking the approval of people over the approval of God. It's very real. And if we're going to finish strong, we have to hold this message with grace and with truth and with conviction and, and courage to the unswerving, unchanging message of Jesus as it's given to us in his word. What does 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul charges Timothy. He says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word. And then he says this, to be instant in season and out of season. For our hunters in the room, okay, we understand that phrasing a little bit. In season and out of season. That you are to rebu reprove, rebuke, and exhort all long suffering and doctrine. 
Instant. Instant means to be ready. It means you are ready and committed to the truth, and you are willing to declare it when it's popular, in season, and when it's unpopular, out of season. Now, I've only been at New Hope for 10 years, okay? In 10 years, the seasons have changed, okay? I, I usually can relate to that. It's always fascinating to me, the response that people I get from people when they find out what I do for work, okay? I like to talk to people. If I'm getting a haircut, I'll talk. If I'm like, it, I really like my father-in-law used to call it a captive audience where like you're stuck with that person for the next 20 minutes and they can't leave. And I just like to talk uh, to people. And usually it's going pretty well. And then they'll, question number four, Bill, what do you do for, what do you do for a living? Uh, and I'm like, oh, here we go, right? This is going to go really good or it's going to get weird really quick, right? Uh, well, I'm a pastor. Oh, okay. And this conversation just kind of dives, right? Like, no real interest in continuing this, right? It used to be like 20, 30 years ago, it was doctor, lawyer, pastor, okay? Now, that was kind of what you wanted your kids to aspire to. Now it's like uh, that's the bottom of the barrel a little bit, right? Like we, for good reasons, bad reasons, there's a lot of things that have gone on in our culture and our history. But ultimately, it's really fascinating to be the in-season, out-of-season concept. That sometimes we're ready and we want to receive the word. Sometimes those around us are not ready or wanting to receive the word. Our commitment is to hold to the message. We're instant in season and out of season. The unchanging message is the same when it's popular and when it's not. It's absolutely vital. If we want to finish well, we don't shift the message. We don't shift the truth of Scripture. I want to finish well. What do I got to do? I got to hold to an unchanging message. I've got to live a life of integrity so that people can inspect. I want to live a life that's not duplicitous, that's not fake or phony or, or hypocritical. Number three, you're going to finish well. I want to pray. I to pray for power and for purity. For power and for purity. Let's go on verse number 16. Verse 16. Samuel's getting up to speak. And he says, now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. I love this. Verse 17. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord and he shall send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done on the side of the Lord in asking for a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord. The Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Awesome God, awesome God. Wheat harvest would have been May to June in Israel. Very rarely raining, very, very dry climate during those two months. Wouldn't have just been a random thunderstorm that showed up in the middle of the day kind of months. And he says, I, I want to show you what kind of God we serve. He says, you got your king that you so desperately wanted. You got your human king, Saul. The Bible says he's head and shoulders by the rest. He's got a full head of hair. He's a warrior. You got your king, right? You got your, your Mr. Suave. You got what you wanted. You've got your power. And he says, now I want you to see the power that I lean on. And he literally, I love this, he prays up a storm, man. He prays up a storm. He starts praying. God send rain, send thunder. Then God sends rain and thunder. And then jaws drop. Miracles take, taking place. The people understand this is power. What is Samuel doing? Samuel's showing them that their king on his own is useless. A king without the power of God is nothing. But those who belong to the Lord God Almighty, they belong to a God of thunder and of glory and of power, a God who is unstoppable and infinite in might and wisdom and understanding and holiness. So he says, okay, stand over there, you're big, tall, good-looking king, all with your crowds, and I'll stand over here by myself with the Lord, and I like my chances, is what he's saying. Well, let's compare power. Let's compare strength. Let's compare might. 
And I think they get the picture. We can't do it without God. Even though we got Saul now, even though we got the human king, we have a desperate need for the power of God. You ever been to a really lopsided sporting event? Usually that takes place like high school or something like that where you got a teams that shouldn't be playing each other. Uh, one team is just far and above a better team. I always like going to those games and about a fourth quarter, maybe that's a football game, the score is 60 to nothing, and you just look and you observe these poor cheerleaders who just fight, fight, we can do it, we're going to win. And you just want to be like, no, you're not going to win, right? No matter how much they fight, no matter how much energy they put in, no matter how much rah-rah you give them, it's not going to happen, right? They are so much better than you. I remember when I was in high school, I went to a small Christian high school uh, where the basketball team looked a lot like me, okay? So wasn't very good uh, at basketball. We were okay, but we played this one team. We walked in, and on the bleachers, there were these three uh, middle-aged guys. They all had kind of polo shirts on with different college logos on. One of those, I remember there was one of the University of Louisville logo. There was the University of Cincinnati logo and the University of Memphis. That was kind of the, the main recruiting ground there in Nashville. And so we're sitting there. We walk in, and we're thinking, oh, those guys are obviously here to see us. Right, like that, that's going to be good. We go into the game, and in warm-ups, these guys are unbelievable. I mean, they're 6'4 and up, all of them. They're jumping out of the gym. They're doing just absolutely, you couldn't dunk in warm-ups. Like, I don't think you can do that in high school, but they're doing everything but. Like, they're showing that they could, and they just drop it in, right? Like, it's unbelievable. And we're all just standing there like, we're, I didn't play very much. I was bad on the bad team. So I'm sitting over there, and like, we're not even warming up. I'm just watching those guys. Like, <laughs> They're unbelievable. Like, we're kind of cheering for them a little bit. Like, this is incredible that we're here. We walk into our locker room, and the coach gets up, and he tries to give us this speech. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Little Giants. I can't remember if it's good or bad. I watched it like 20 years ago, so forgive me if it's not good. But there's this speech they give in Little Giants of it only takes one time. Right? They might beat us 99 times out of 100, but there's the one time. And he's trying to give it, you know, get us all fired up. And we're sitting there like, bro, it ain't going to work, Right? <laughs> And then we lost the game 112 to 16. 16. No matter how much rah-rah you get, I'm sure the cheerleaders over there were giving it their best try. We weren't going to win. Those moments where you realize no matter how much strength and vigor we put into this, we are no match for real power. We are no match for real strength. That's what happens for us in this life as well. Without God, we are losing a billion to nothing with 10 seconds left on the clock. You cannot win. You cannot do it. So if you hear this, I'm going to live a life of integrity. I'm going to hold to the message. You cannot do that on your own. Apart from him, the Bible says we can do nothing. Nothing. You need the Lord. I need the Lord. We need the Lord. If we're going to finish strong, we have to pray for the power of God. Zechariah 4, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by his spirit, says the Lord of hosts, right? It's not through our ability, it's not through our strength, it's not through our self-discipline. Sunday mornings, I wake up early. Uh, the week, I don't write my sermon Sunday morning, but I feel like Sunday morning God tells me what not to say. Um, so all week I write and I research and I try and think things through, and early Sunday morning I just I kind of get my mind around what I'm actually going to work in. And every Sunday morning, I feel like the message I get from the Lord is, you are a stick. You're a branch. And you better be connected. Because all of this creativity and good outline that makes grammatical, homiletical sense ain't going to do a thing. Without me, you can do nothing. 
a branch detached from the vine is a powerless, dead stick. God is the one who pours water on a dry and thirsty land. God is the one who works. Without God, nothing happens. God is the one who brings life. And we pray that even for our church, that God, you're the one who saves and strengthens and fills, because we know we can't. We know we can't. We can't do this. We can't renew. We can't revive. We can't do these things. Only God can do those things. Only God can renew. Only God can revive. Would, would God bring in us a greater resolve to pray and admit our dependence on him? God, we need you. Would God forgive us for our laziness and our apathy and our pride or our, our self-righteousness that we can do it on our own? Understand this, church. If we're not praying for God's power and God's help, we are saying to God, thanks, I think I can do this on my own. And you will not finish well on your own. We will not finish well through our own strength, through our own power, through our own discipline. It is through him. A true believer sits with Bible open, realizing, God, I am in desperate need for you. I need you to work in my life. I need you to work in my home. I need you to work in the lives of my kids. I need you. So what do we do? We pray our faces off, man. We pray because I know I can't. I know I don't have the ability. I know I don't have the strength. We pray for God's power. So yeah, you have your big impressive king, Samuel says, but look what I can do with prayer to a God who's all-powerful. Look what I can do with a God who has the power to, to meet us in our needs. God, would you fill us and convict us and convince us once again of our need for you. Samuel in this chapter mentions the Lord's name 30 times. His farewell address, he talks a whole lot about the Lord. God did this. God helped us. God provided for us. God was the one who did this. Samuel knows he can't, but God can. God can. So much of our life is ultimately due to the prayers of other people, the prayers that we even lean on, our, on the Lord ourselves in dependence on him. December, we had that day where um, the church was really kind to Sarah and I for being here for 10 years, and they did a little video, right? And I watched the video, and didn't cry publicly, and I watched it, and I was, you know, just kind of processing the good things. And I reflect on those 10 years, and for us, um, I genuinely feel like the only reason I am still here, as awesome as the good things were, was because over the course of 10 years, there's been a handful of people who have committed to say, Pastor, we're going to pray for you, and we're going to pray for Sarah, and we're going to pray for your kids. And I'm, I'm, I genuinely feel like that is probably the only reason I'm here, because I want to finish, man. I don't care about starting. Like 10 years, some of you guys are way older than 10. A few of you are way older than 10 years, right? We want to finish well. You don't just want to start in something. It's God's power that allows those things to flow. We watched the video, and man, it was encouraging. You see the good news, and people getting baptized, and buildings going forward, and lakes being filled, and all sorts of good things. Um, but at the same time, my mind goes to like, oh, those were good days, but I remember the, the bad days. You know, I remember days of discouragement, days of difficulty, and days of darkness, and days of opposition, and days of divisiveness, and days of, you know, times looking at Sarah with both of us just kind of tears in her eyes saying, I don't really want to do this anymore, right? Those are days where the only reason you're still doing it is because people prayed. You don't have the strength to be able to do that. You don't have the strength within ourselves to say, you know, I'm going to rise up and I'm going to do it again tomorrow. I don't have that kind of strength, that kind of discipline. None of us do. God helps us. This is God's power. Sometimes people laugh because they'll say, hey, Angel, was a good sermon. And if you've ever said this to me, they're probably the response is, oh, praise God. And it can go up a little habitual because, one, I don't know how to take a compliment. I'm not good at that. Um, but, two, I do. I want to reflect like that. If it was good, I promise you it wasn't my outline. I promise you it wasn't my creativity that I told a funny story about a TSA agent that was overzealous. That one fell flat. It didn't work. You all saw it. I saw it. It didn't work, right? Like, 
You know, it's not our creativity. It's not our power. It's not our, it's God that does it, right? God's the one who's going to take his word, multiply it in a way that there's a couple hundred people sitting in the room where he speaks to all of us in different ways and unique. That's God, right? We got to pray for his power. What it, what's being, it, just, it makes me want to pray more, right? God, we need your help. We need your help. My hope is that we lean on it in, in a new way of reminding, man, I'm a stick without the Lord, but I'm with the Lord. I'm a vine. I'm attached to one who has power, and I can do something. May God delights. What is the New Testament? God delights in a church that's a house of prayer. So may our church be that. Verse 19. Not only do we pray for power, we pray for purity. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God that we would not die. For we have added unto all of our sins this evil to ask for us a king. And Samuel said unto the people, don't fear. For ye have done all this wickedness. Yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord again with all your heart. Uh, that's been my theme. But I didn't even know going into the study how often we see with all your heart, with all your heart, with all your heart. Verse 21. And turn ye not aside, for then ye should go after vain things. Your Bibles might say empty things, which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. They are empty. He says, not only do you need to pray for God's power, you need to stay pure. He says, don't run after these other gods. They said, you know what, Samuel, you're right. We shouldn't have asked for a king in that way. What, can you ask God to forgive us? He says, just serve the Lord with all your heart and continue to trash your idols. Remember that a couple of weeks ago, we're going to turn from these things and turn unto the Lord. He says, continue to reject those things, verse 21, that are vain, that are empty. They cannot deliver you, the things that cannot profit you. A little bit of a different tone. Not so much false gods, but just false pursuits or empty pursuits. Not so much turning from Baal and Ashtaroth that we studied a couple of weeks ago, but turning away from things that are vain and things that are empty. That those things, I love verse 21, that cannot profit. They can't deliver you because they're empty. And in fact, they're obstacles, good things becoming obstacles to wholehearted service of the Lord. Verse 21, I stared at that verse so much this week, and I wish that I could just tattoo it on all of our foreheads. I really do. I wish it could be just implanted in our brains wherever we go. Don't run after empty things. They cannot profit you. They cannot deliver you. They are empty. And I wish we could just put it on everything. So I did something. We put it on some things. Let's put up a couple pictures here. Stacy. first one, we're going to call it stuff or cars. I don't know if you're a car guy. Uh, I know nothing about cars other than I want a heated seat. That's all I know. Um, but cars, some of us, it's, it's, it can be stuff, it can be materials, it can be houses, right? We're running after, we're pursuing. We want these things, verse 21. We're, we're pursuing them with all our hearts. He says, don't turn under these things into our vein. So what I want to do in our minds this morning is take the giant sticker and tattoo in our minds, and we're going to kabam it. Ready? We're going to kaboom. Right. All right, there it is, right? We're just going to cover it. What's the next one? What's the next one? We got... Oh, dollar bills, some Benjamins. I took this uh, at Justin's house. It was just on his bed. It was just laid out all over the bed. So I took this photo there. Anyway, so we pursue money. We pursue, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. We pursue stuff. We pursue, you know, success. We want what the world has to offer us. And my hope this morning is we can kaboom, plant the same sticker on it. These things are vain. These things are empty. They cannot profit you. They cannot deliver you. Okay, what's our next one? We're going to offend everybody. Okay, vacation. We'll call this one our vacation spot. Like, it can be good, right? can re replenish us. But if we're pursuing it in a way that we're worshiping it, we're finding, oh, I can, I can get through whatever because vacation's coming, right? That, that kind of concept, that's what we live for to be able to disconnect. For some of us, could be, this could be retirement. That I'm going to work and work and work just so I don't have to work anymore, right? And that's that day we long for on the beach. My hope this morning is we can see it just in the same way. These things are kabooming. They are 
vain, they are empty, they cannot profit, they cannot deliver. What's our next one? The next one we have office, work, career, success, right? If I make it to the next corner office, I make it to the next pay scale, if I make it to the next step, I'm going to live my life and pursuing these things. Verse 21, 1 Samuel chapter 12, these things are vain, these things are empty, they cannot profit, they cannot deliver. We have any more? I think we got another one, right? One more? Oh, two more. Come on, social media. Now we're talking. Amen. Let's preach that one for a while. Uh, Instagram, Facebook. This is an old photo. It's now X, not Twitter anymore, right? TikTok, uh, if you're weird, right? No, but, um, or if you're under the age of 60, right, or whatever it is. But um, spend all of our days devoting ourselves to this stuff. You ever found, my phone will tell me, and it's embarrassing, I don't like it. It'll tell you, how, how much last week did you spend on this stuff? I don't, I don't worship it. Uh, compare it with your Bible app stats, all right? Come on now. Come on now. Yeah, anyways, what is it? Kaboomy, right? Turn aside from these things. They're vain. They're empty. They cannot profit. They cannot deliver. They're empty. Last one. Oh, beauty. This is mine, obviously. No, but uh, this can be, obviously, physical fitness, right? This can be pursuing that which is physical, that which we see with our eyes what does the bible say these things are vain these things are empty kablam right they cannot profit they cannot deliver so my i I should have printed stickers um for everybody to take these and stick them all over your house stick them on your video game console stick them on your tv stick them on your fridge i actually stick it in your stomach because it is empty right i want to eat but uh whatever it is remember first samuel chapter 12 verse 21 do not turn into things which cannot profit you do not turn from the lord to things that cannot deliver you. Because he gives this whole run about how God delivered them, right? You, you cried for help and God delivered you. You cried for help and God blessed you. God profited you. God took care of you. So don't go running to that which cannot do that. Remind ourselves this morning of our stuff, of our money, of our vacations, of our social media, of our, our physical fitness. These, these things cannot fulfill us. They are vain. They are empty. Not wrong. Not sinful, Okay. But we cannot sustain us. They cannot satisfy us. They cannot fill that hole in our hearts for for meaning, for purpose. Every day I'm tempted to live for that which is empty. Every day. I'm tempted to live for that which cannot satisfy me. And may we tattoo that verse in our minds. Maybe we'll get some stickers made for us to put on some stuff this week, okay? Not your rear view mirror because you need to see that, okay? But number four, number four. Essential to finishing strong. I want to live a life of integrity. I want to hold to an unchanging message. I'm not going to manipulate the word to adapt to people. I'm going to pray for power, God's help. I'm going to pray for the purity of my heart and my worship to the Lord. The number four, I want to resolve to serve him faithfully. Verse 23, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. I love this. This is Samuel's philosophy of ministry, okay? Um, Nuts and bolts, not bells and whistles, Okay? Some people joked a few weeks ago, we talked about their church and how the building's filling up, and they asked when we're going to get a big auditorium with a smoking machine. Um, one, I think I'd sneeze a lot if we got one. I was thinking, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, we're not a big bells and whistles kind of place. Um, I like, I, I saw an author put out, we like the nuts and bolts of ministry, not the bells and whistles. What's the nuts and bolts of ministry? It's First Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. God forbid that I was sinning against the Lord and ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. It's prayer, it's the word. That's the nuts and bolts, right? And that's what Samuel's philosophy of ministry is. Hey, I'm not going to stop just because I'm not your judge anymore. I'm not going to stop praying for you. I'm not going to stop teaching you what the Bible says. I love that. I love that. That's a really good plan, Samuel. Verse 24, only fear the Lord. Serve him in truth with all your heart. Again, with all your heart. 
for consider how great things he hath done for you. I love that. Only. What's that only? It's not saying that's the only thing you do. Okay? He says if you're going to do anything, do this. Okay? Most of us can't go tomorrow to work and quit our jobs and, and, and go and change career paths. And most of us, that's not how it's going to work. Okay? He's not saying this is the only thing you do. He's saying if you're going to do anything, you do this. What does he say? Fear the Lord. Serve him in truth with all your heart, remembering all the things he's done for you. I love that. If, you had, if somebody asked you, what's your goal in life? What's your number one aim? Like, what are you shooting for? My hope is our answer would be something close to 1 Samuel 12, 24. I want to fear the Lord. I want to serve him with all my heart, remembering how good he's been to me. Fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with everything I've got. Let me tell you something. With the authority of God's word behind me, okay? If that's all you do, if at the end of your life that's all you, that's all you accomplished in the world's eyes, you didn't get the corner office, you didn't get the new car, you didn't get the, 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 the dream vacations, you didn't get there. All you accomplished was you feared the Lord, you served him faithfully with all your heart, remembering the good things he's done for you. According to scripture, with the authority of God's word behind me, you are wildly successful. If you have faithfully served the Lord with all you have. The amount of people that are at the end of this life just going to their last day dragging stuff and dragging possessions and dragging their self-identity and dragging who they made themselves to be before the Lord. Like, he's going to be impressed by it. Like, man, the streets here are gold. Like, what are we going to do with your, all your $100 bills, Justin? What are we going to do with it? No, I'm just kidding. What are we going to do with all this cash? What are we going to do with the new car? What are we going to do with the, with the, with the career? What, what does that do, right? It's vain. It's, it doesn't profit. It's not going to get us there. All of that is vain and empty. So many people are wasting their lives, their one chance at life pursuing that which in the end is nothing. But if you set a goal, verse 24, I'm going to fear the Lord. I'm going to serve him with everything that I've got out of a motivation of gratitude for all the things he's done for us. That is success. Matthew 25, the parable of talents, we get this picture of uh, the poorest, least educated, simplest person that stewarded their life, feared the Lord, served God faithfully. What do they hear when they get to heaven? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is success. That is success. And I want to fear the Lord. I want to serve him faithfully. I want to do it with all that I've got. I have nothing else. You do that, you are an absolute, fantastically awesome success in the eyes of the Lord. You've been faithful. We compare ourselves so much, don't we? Oh, they got five bedrooms. I've only got four bedrooms. They got, have you seen their bathroom, right? Have you, have you seen what, the, what they did with their yard? Have you seen, like, I, I have lawn envy. I don't really have house envy, but I admire lawns. Like, more I admire the kind of life where you have that much time to spend. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I really want my lawn to look good, and I failed. I fail all the time. I, I'm just not good at it. But, um, we see and we compare and we think their life is better than mine or they, they have a better job than I do. They own their own business. They're more successful. They have this. They have more kids. Like all of we compare ourselves, right? Man, then I'd be successful. Then I'll know that I made it. No, do we know Jesus? If we know Jesus, 
We fear Jesus. We fear the Lord. We serve him faithfully. Man, that's success. If you don't know Jesus, you can't access anything we talked about this morning. Those things are in Christ. The ability to pray for power, the ability to pray for, pray for purity, the, the unchanging message of the word, those things are in, are in Jesus, that Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. He took the punishment and wrath of God because of our sins and brokenness and selfish decisions. He sacrificed himself for us, raising from the dead, victoriously defeating death, and now invites you to know him and have a relationship with him through faith and belief in him today. You can't earn it. You can't make yourself a spiritual success. You believe and receive by grace through faith. This morning, as we kind of look at the tail end of Samuel's life, this week, man, it's been just a good reminder to me. It doesn't matter how we start. And we're going to finish well. And you get around some people, and I, I love the gray hair of our church, and don't look around at who has it, okay? But uh, I really, really like being around Christians that have done this for a long, long time. And their, their life is just a reflection of 1 Samuel 12, 24. They, they fear the Lord. They serve him with their whole heart. And they can't, can't help but praise God for all the things he's done in their life. Considering all these things God has done for us. I love that. That's a good motivation, right? I will serve the Lord because you must serve me. No, no, no. You see, you serve the Lord remembering all of these things we just talked about. How you were in slavery. How you were captured. How you were broken in your sinfulness. And you prayed and God helped you. Remember that. Serve God with all you have, and my prayer is that each of us would finish our races well, we'd finish strong, and I hope you get the beach, I hope you get the car, I hope it all goes there, but if you get nothing else, remember all those things are vain and empty, and they don't profit you, they cannot save you, they cannot deliver you, but if my life is a reflection of the sacrifice that Jesus made for me, fearing God in response to his power and glory and strength and majesty and love, and I serve him with all my heart, because he's done so much for me. The Bible calls that a success. And my hope is that each of us make it there. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this.